For all of its talk about transparency and accountability, Congress itself has a ways to go on these matters. Lately, a group called the Congressional Data Task Force has expanded its own charter. This as the House moves to fund some overdue technology updates. For what's going on, we turn to the policy director of Demand Progress, Daniel Schumann. Dan, good to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And let's begin with the most recent appropriations bill they're talking about for 2023. There's a lot in there about Congress itself. So let's start with what you're seeing, what matters here. We're seeing about 50 different items that relate to government transparency, accountability, and strengthening the legislative branch and oversight. It's things that you and I have been talking about, I think, for over a decade. Some of them are things that rise to newsworthiness in terms of going everywhere, which is questions around congressional unionization. We're seeing funding for this process for House staff to unionize. But there's also a lot of esoteric things in there that have been long overdue. Things like the statements of disbursements, which is probably the wonkiest thing that I could ever talk about on your show, which is basically tracking how all the money moves through the House. They're going to be publishing that information online and in a data format, which means that you will actually be able to see how much money each contractor gets or uh, tracking staffers over time. They're fixing the way to track lobbyists so that I'm a federally registered lobbyist. Our unique identifiers will be publicly available so you can see all the entities that I lobbied for. But more generally, Akbul, except for nerds like you and me, are things like, you know, I mentioned unionization before, increasing pay for interns um, so that now all interns in the House will be able to earn the minimum wage in D.C. D.C. minimum wage went up to 16 bucks an hour. They will all be able to earn a little bit more than that. There is expansion of tracking of diversity and retention. There's greater outreach for hiring. As you know, interns are the pipe for staff. So they're improving both tracking of them and outreach. Uh, they're creating a new office, basically the intern office, that will be focused on helping them to engage in the process and the support member offices. One of the things that we've discovered over time is uh, there are inspector generals inside the legislative branch, but there's a whole bunch of gaps in coverage. Some places have oversight and some places have none. So they're going to do a study to figure out where the IGs don't have oversight and try to close those gaps. And on the flip side of that, The Capitol Police Inspector General, which you and I have spoken of before, they don't publish their reports to the public like all 80-something other federal inspector generals. So the appropriators have said for the third year in a row, okay, guys, it's really time. Publish those darn IG reports. Make them publicly available so we can actually see what you're investigating. Wow. So Um, they are acting on a broad range of issues. Quick question. This is in the House Appropriations Bill. Does it need Senate confirmation to become law for the House? Legislative branch appropriations are weird. So the answer is yes and no. Many of these items are included in the committee report. Uh, Committee report, of course, never becomes law, but it is persuasive to the people inside the legislative branch. So if you see the appropriators include language in the committee report, either in the House or in the Senate, unless it's contradicted someplace else, the stakeholders will follow it. So the things that relate to the House itself become very likely to happen. Things that relate to other entities, such as CRS needs to make better summaries of the bills because no one can understand the summaries that they're currently publishing. That is still persuasive, but it's a little bit less persuasive, but you're going to see them likely to act. And then some things that relate to funding levels. So there's a 70 million bump for the government accountability office to do oversight and more funding for science and technology. That doesn't happen until and unless the appropriations bill becomes law. So when it comes to Congress, everything is just weirder and this is weirder, but it's fun. 
Yeah, well, I've always thought Congress is a bit on the weird side. We're speaking with Daniel Schumann. He's policy director of Demand Progress. And there's also language about the modernization of the House technology itself. And I always go to the fact that they publish unsearchable PDFs of their bills. And, of course, bill language is mostly nonsense to the normal eye. So what's going on there? Oh, there's so much great news here. Things that you and I, again, have talked about for, for a dozen years are changing. So one is that they are creating a pot of money, uh, a $10 million technology modernization fund. The House will soon roll housewide a tool that allows you to see how an amendment would change a bill or a bill would change a law in real time. So if you've got a draft amendment and you want to know what it would actually do, you can push a button. And you can actually see what it would do. So you can stack up a couple of amendments, one against the other, and you can basically see what their effects would be. They've been building this for a long time. It will be housewide by the end of the year. This was something that's been long supported through the appropriations process. And it was announced that what you mentioned at the top of the show with the newly renamed Congressional Data Task Force. Also incoming along those lines. If you've ever tried to look up amendments to Senate bills, you've ended up Digging through the congressional record, which is, while a fantastically useful resource, not where most people spend most of their time. They will soon be including all of the amendments in the Senate in Congress.gov. And if you've ever looked at the bill text that's published on Congress.gov, it's like this weird, narrow column with like funny line breaks that's very hard to read. Well, they are updating the tool, they being um, GPO in the Library of Congress and others so that it actually will look like something a normal person could read, so you can actually copy and paste and use it. So it's getting better. And Um, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a moment ago, a $10 million technology modernization fund. Is that for Congress, or is that just the update of the TMF available to federal agencies? Oh, so this is a new fund. It was created last year at $2 million, and it's going up to $10 million this year. And it's for the House only. So this is a pot of money for the chief administrative officer, for the clerk of the house, and for a bunch of other little offices that no one's heard of, like the Office of Law Revision Council, to build all of these tools that we've been talking about. There's a new house digital service as well that we'll be able to draw from this. And its purpose is to fund many of the recommendations made by the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. So things like how amendment changes the bill, bill changes the law in real time, tracking lobbyists, fixing committee documents. You know, one of the big problems that you have is that it's often very hard to find witness disclosure forms or to find testimony or things like that. This is to modernize all of that so that you can have a dedicated set of funds that will persist over time so that you can build short and longer term technology projects that will update a lot of their operational stuff. You know, a lot of these things seem sort of in the weeds. The effect of it is you can see influence over time. You can see legislation over time. You can track the committees better. You can find the videos better. It will improve the experience both on the Hill and off to understand what Congress is doing. Uh, And that's a lot of bang for a little buck. And what is the bulk data task force? And they've been up to some action too recently. That's exactly right. So the bulk data task force, as you know, was created a decade ago because Congress is trying to figure out whether or not they were going to make legislative information available to the American people as data, and they decided to do so. So it was just renamed as the Congressional Data Task Force. And in addition to the other things that we talked about, they're also looking at improving how Senate video is made available so you can actually find it, which is something which is actually surprisingly difficult to do for a number of proceedings. And there was an announcement at their meeting 
that the Library of Congress will now have an API for their information. So GPO has long had an API. An API is basically a way for a computer to ask another computer for something, saying, hey, give me the text of this bill, or what's the status of this action? For 10 years, we've had this information published in bulk, so that if you were a developer, you could download thousands and thousands of pages of data. But what you couldn't do is saying, hey, what's the status of this particular bill? They will have this tool so that people who are building technology and tools, either inside Congress or out, can say, I want the text of this thing. Just give me that. Or has this bill passed the house? These types of tools, these little web hooks, make it possible to build modern technology around questions relating to legislative information. And just a final question, does all of this have bipartisan support, these modernization moves, these transparency moves, and so on? The vast majority of these things that we've discussed do have bipartisan support. Almost all the technology modernization stuff, or all of it does, all the recommendations from the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress need to have at least two-thirds of the committee agree. The vast majority were unanimous. Legislative branch appropriators, majority and a minority, as did the Committee on House Administration for most of these things. You see some divergence around the diversity and inclusion stuff a little bit. There's an Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and you do see real divisions around the unionization question. Putting into effect actually an item in the contract with America from 25 years ago to uh, personal community leader staff to unionize. Republicans uh, say that they are generally not supportive of this happening inside the House, although they don't seem to have a problem with it happening necessarily inside the support offices and agencies where there's been unions for decades and decades. Interesting. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on those developments. Daniel Schumann is Policy Director of Demand Progress. Thanks so much for a highly informed update. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.